have a seat. God bless you and welcome, welcome to any that are joining us online tonight or whenever you should join us. Uh, we welcome you. We are in week two of our series, Meet Me um, in the Mountain. Meet Me in the Mountain or Meet Me on the Mountain. And we are looking in this series at the life of Elijah. And um, I, I particularly love the life of Elijah. I love reading the stories of how God used him and, and the many things that um, he experienced in his walk with the Lord. And, and so I, 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 I'm here kind of selfishly. I'm here for me to, to go through this series and uh, to encourage myself in the Lord. But I, I believe more than anything, it's not just for me. I believe that the Lord directed um, us to it because there's much that we can glean from it and much that God could speak to us through it. So tonight we are in 1 Kings chapter 17. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And um, I've titled it, When Ravens Feed Us. When ravens feed us, and and just to by point of a reference, when um, I was a teenager, I still do this. I'm still guilty of this. I like to throw bread and stuff out for the birds in my backyard. I particularly enjoy watching sh um, sparrows come and eat in my backyard. I love watching how busy they are, and um, so you know that's just me. And so as I'm guilty of that, this one particular time, I was just um, in my mid-teens, I believe it was, and I had thrown some bread out, and the ravens came, and they were eating all the bread, and it really bothered me because the poor little sparrows couldn't get their feed because the ravens were eating it all, and I just complained to my brother. I says, all oh, those stupid ravens. They're eating all the bread and they're hogging it all and I put it out, not even for them, I put it out for the sparrows and he says, well, you know, Melody, God used the ravens too so you can't get upset. And so uh, tonight we find ourselves in a raven of a story, a raven of the story. And, and um, as I tell this, I was reading and um, I, as I was preparing, I should say, I was studying and I fell upon the story of a friend of Martin Luther, and his name was Johannes Brenz. And um, he was hated by Emperor uh, Charles V. And because he was hated by him for his stance on Christianity and, and the faith that he had, um, and this, this emperor, Charles, uh, was on, on a vigil to kill him. And so he, he had sent some troops out to, to seek him out and to kill him. And so Johannes went to hide himself into another city. And in that city, he found himself in a hayloft. He brought with him one loaf of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but, but one loaf of bread in my house does not go very far. Uh, so I don't know for, for Johannes how far he thought he was going to go, but he knew that the loaf of bread would not be too sufficient to feed him. He was hiding for 14 days. But here's the thing. Here's the very beautiful thing of God. During that 14 days, every day a hen would come to that hayloft. And that hen would come, nestle herself into the hay, lay an egg, and take off. And so for 14 days, this continued, and each day he would wake up to the cackling of the hen, laying an egg, and taking off. And so he each day had a little bit of bread and a little egg, and that the Lord sustained him through this time. On the 15th day of hiding there from Emperor Charles V, uh, the hen did not show up. And so he was thinking, what will I eat this day? And as he's pondering that thought of what he would eat, all of a sudden he heard the shouting from outside and he went to the window of the hayloft and he, and he heard them saying, the Calvary are gone, the Calvary are gone. And so he knew those that were pursuing him and those that were pu pursuing others to kill them 
that he was now in a safe place and God had provided for him for as long as he was in that hayloft because it wasn't any crime that he had done that he was hiding. He was simply hiding because his life was in pursuit of. And tonight, as we look at Elijah, he too was put into a place of hiding and he too was fed by an unlikely source. For as long as he was there, he was taken care of. And so this is where we find ourselves in Elijah, in Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, 1 to 7, and it reads this, now Elijah the Tishite, the Tish of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as long as the Lord, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherish which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherish, that is east of Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and, and meat in morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So here's Elijah with a very similar experience, but his does not end as the same um, as, as uh, our friend with the Calvary. It wasn't just 14 days. His was three years that he was found in this place. And when his date, when, when the time came, the brook dried up. What was he going to do? Remain there and die? Elijah, as we discussed last week, he has a story that we don't know of his lineage. We don't know who his mother was nor his father was. We don't know of his education. We don't know of, of his line. Uh, when we studied the book of uh, Haggai, as we were opening up the, the, the pages of the book of Haggai, it introduced us to him as Haggai, a prophet of the Lord. But now as we read 1 Kings 17, all of a sudden we hear now Elijah. Now Elijah, as if there's something we know about him or as if there's something we should understand preceding this. Now Elijah, whenever I use that expression now, there was something before that you needed to hear or there was something said before that, uh, that needed to be understood. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm saying, okay, we need to look closer at the verses preceding this. So 1 Kings 16, verses 29 to 34 says this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, and as if it had been light, a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his first son, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, so what did we just read? How, does that, how do we go from these verses into now, Elijah, what is God saying? So we have this man, Ahab. He succeeded over Asa. And Ahab reigned as a king for 22 years. He married Jezebel. And if you all know who Jezebel is, this controlling woman, that was not such a great move on his part. But beyond marrying 
slain Jezebel, he also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, he did not serve God in the way that he should have served God. He did more to provoke God. He did more to provoke the Lord than all of the kings that preceded him. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere... It seems as though verse 34 drops in. And verse 34 talks of this guy, Heal. Hiel, however you want to say it. And what does Hiel do? He builds Jericho. Jer- All of a sudden, Hiel says, well, you know, there's this good part of land here. I've been observing it. That nobody's been, you know, uh, developing it. Nothing is taking place here. I don't understand. I, I, I'm, I'm going to build upon this land. I'm just surmising this is Heel's idea because he just goes in and he builds the foundations of Jericho. So what's this all mean to us? Yeah, 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 so what? So what? Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy 11.16 and track with me. We're going to get to the point of it all, I promise you. Deuteronomy 11.16, and it says this. Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Take care, lest your heart be deceived and turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Turn right. Go to chapter 16 of Deuteronomy. It says this, verse 21. He said, you shall not plant any tree as an asherah before the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. What is going on here? Ahab introduced Baal worship into the land. Ahab, the leader of the people, introduced Baal worship into the land. He also posted an Asherah. What was Baal? Baal was the god of rain, was a god of vegetation, was a god of fertility. So if they were wanting any of these things to be manifested in their life, if they needed more rain, well, they worshipped Baal. If they needed fertility, well, they went to their god Baal and they, and they offered to him, they worshipped him. And so this is what was introduced to them through their leader Ahab. And so what happens? While people are worshiping another god, while they are worshiping this idol, while their eyes have been taken off of the one true God, the enemy subtly comes in. And so their eyes are taken up with themselves. Their eyes were taken up with their wants, and they're going to their Baal God, and they're worshiping him. And in behind the scenes comes this guy riding the, 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 the heels, if you want to say of the story, Hail, uh, and he comes in, and his name actually means that God lives. Hail's name actually means that God lives. But what challenged me when I read verse 34 and I see him laying the foundations of Jericho, obviously I'm realizing that Hail is too caught up in Baal worship because God is not living within his own own life. God is not living within him that God is directing him. He's not acknowledging God because if God lived within his own life, he would not have laid the foundation of Jericho. He would not have gone to rebuild Jericho. Why? Because in Joshua 6:26 it said this, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of what? His firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he lay up its gates. What happened to Heal? Because he went and decided that he was going to rebuild Jericho, he lost his first son, Abram, and he lost his son, Segub. Why? Because Joshua spoke a curse. You see, 
their eyes were on worshiping Baal. Their eyes were taken off of God. Their eyes on, were on their own idols of that time. And because of that, they did not remember the promises of God. They did not remember what God's word was. They did not even remember the storyline from their ancestors that Joshua had spoken a curse. Anyone who would rebuild this land because that was where the walls of Jericho were, were torn down. And so here, Hill came to lose his son, his firstborn son, and his son, Segub. For me, I said to myself, okay, God may not be alive in the life of Hillel. He might not, I'm sorry, I'm saying it three, four, five different kinds of way, but H-I-E-L, Hail. He may not be alive in him. His name means God lives. But by the very virtue that he is the one who is rebuilding Jericho, going against the decree that had been made of, Jer uh, of Joshua, proves that God lives because God does not forget right? Because God, if Joshua made that curse, Joshua didn't make it in and of himself. Joshua made it as a directive of God. And so God lives, and this is why this man lost his sons. Now, how does this bring us to the now Elijah? Well, some of the rabbinic teachings, they have this Talmud. They will say that the rabbis the rabbi suggests that maybe Elijah came at this time and he was having a disagreement with Ahab. Maybe Elijah had heard that Halil's sons had died and he, and he remembered what Joshua had proclaimed. He remembered the curse and he went there in interest. We don't know. But when the scripture says now of the mat it's it's just pointing to us that this remember last week i said that elijah's name means jehovah is god okay so now this is how it's reading for us okay ahab has committed adultery ahab is introduced uh, idolatry idolatry to the people ahab has has caused the people to worship baal Hail comes in and he begins to rebuild Jericho. Now, now Elijah, let's read it this way. Now Jehovah is God. Remember I said to you, wherever Elijah went, his name was reminded the people, Jehovah is God. God. Now Jehovah is God and, and Elijah comes to declare, as long as I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Ahab, you have committed idolatry. Ahab, you have introduced Baal worship to the land. But now let it be known to you. It hasn't been raining six months, but now let it be known to you. Jehovah is God. He's not just going to allow this idolatry to in, intermingle in amongst his people. He's not just going to allow idolatry to control and rule and reign. Do you think that Jehovah is God, therefore Baal will be God? No, God is introducing through Elijah, I am God and I'm going to prove myself. So when I read it, now Elijah... I read it is now Jehovah is God. As you complete chapter 16 and you see all that Ahab had done for 22 years, introducing these people into idol worship, and you see what Heel had done into bringing the, trying to rebuild Jericho and his two sons dying. Ch start chapter 17 knowing that God, Jehovah is God, and he's about to prove himself strong. And so, uh, Elijah declares this to the people. He, excuse me, to Ahab. And he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, live before whom I stand. When he says to him, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, 
Elijah knows he's not just making this word up from within himself. He is speaking before God. And in other words, he's, he's standing trembling before God to deliver the word. There shall be neither dew nor rain except these years these years except by my mouth you know what that brings us to deuteronomy chapter 16 that we just read 11 chapter 16 but then it goes to verse 17 so let's go to deuteronomy uh, 11 verses 16 to 17 and it says this be careful or you will entice to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them then here it is. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you shall soon perish for the good land the Lord is giving you. Okay, now we have better insight to what's going on with Elijah. Elijah has insight. He understands what God declared back there in Deuteronomy to Moses. If you're going to give yourself to other gods, if you're going to give yourself to idol worship, you better be careful. You better be careful, lest the heavens be shut up, lest there be no rain in the land. And here's Elijah. All of a sudden he comes on the scene and now Jehovah is God and he reminds them you've been giving yourself into idol worship through the mouth of Elijah he reminds Ahab you've given yourself to idol worship and now there is no rain in the land now imagine yourself to be Ahab and you hear this guy Elijah who is he can you hear Ahab? But who are you to tell me? What are you saying? Immediately after Elijah sends, it gives this word to Ahab, God says this to Elijah. And then the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn east, eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherish, which is east of Jordan. Elijah speaks the word, and immediately God says, Elijah, get out of here. Get out of here. Because God is going to do something through the life of Elijah, and we're going to learn on this little journey four things. God sends Elijah to conf confront the sin of God's people. He sends Elijah he tested God, uh, God tested Elijah's faith through trusting his guidance. We're going to see God tested Elijah while, he, while um, he has him in his hiding place. And God tested Elijah when the brook ran dry. So Elijah had a relationship with God, evidently. Elijah had stirred up within his heart, stored up within his heart, the truth of God's word and so he was able to go to Ahab in great courage and speak to him a word of the Lord and in other words he's confronting Ahab there's sin in your life have you ever had to confront someone for sin that was in their life the Lord as you're reading the word of God, it comes before you and all of a sudden you are aware and you have to confront somebody about sin in their life. And they don't necessarily receive that confrontation well. Who are you to tell me? Well, as if you're so perfect, as if you, oh, you never make mistakes, excuse me. And they get very, very defensive. You know you've hit the button. Well, God had Elijah go to confront the sins of the people. He was a very unlikely man. He wasn't educated because we're not told that he was. 
He wasn't a man that, that, was, that came, as we said, with the name. He was the prophet Elijah. He was a very unlikely choice. And that is exactly what God likes to use, the unlikely choices. You can expect in your life that you may have to confront the sin that is around you. You may have to confront an individual that you work with, a neighbor that lives on the street, or somebody that might be within your family. When it's before you, you may have to confront that sin. Just because you are not the pastor over their life or just because you may not be in in a superior situation, you may be that unlikely person that God would use to confront a sin in a person's life. Elijah tells King Ahab that he was in for an an extended dry spell. Ahab, get ready. It's not going to rain for a while. Ahab, get ready because you're in for a big drought. And the reason why is because you have defiled the Lord's word that he spoke. You can expect what he said to Moses. There will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly. How much faith did Elijah have in this moment as he had to confront Ahab? We don't know exactly. It's not like it's laid out before us, but we do know this. He had enough faith to be able to confront a king. He had enough faith to be able to stand before a king of the land and say to him, you're in for a drought. You're in for a dry spell. You're in for a a time where you are not going to be blessed. There will neither be food. There will be a famine in your life because you have not honored God in the way you are living. In the way you are worshiping, you have not honored God. And so no sooner Elijah gives this word, because... um, No sooner Elijah had given this word, what does God do? God says to him, Elijah, you need to leave this place and you need to go into another place. Uh, 1 Kings 17, verses 2 to 3. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself from the brook Cherish, which is east of Jordan. So first God tested Elijah and he had him confront the sin that was in Ahab's life. So we can expect that God may use us to confront people and the sin in their life. The other thing is now, number two, God tested Elijah's faith through trusting through Elijah, trusting in God's guidance. There is going to be times where God may ask you to do something. You're going to have to trust his guidance. We saw that exercise last week in our prayer meeting. As someone in our congregation had felt led of the Lord that they were to pray into a specific area and they had not done so. But then through, through Bible study, then the Lord began to impress upon them again. And what did they do? They stepped out in faith by the guidance of the Lord to pray into a specific area of, the, of ministry, of the people in the house, of the leadership. And so God can test us. God tested Elijah's faith because Elijah could have said, but God, like I just gave this word, for sure you need me to stay here and follow follow through and teach them, you know, they're not to be worshiping Baal. We could presume that maybe there was a conversation. Nothing that the scripture lends to gives us to believe that. All that we know is this. God said to him, Elijah, get up and go. And so what did Elijah do? Okay, I'm going. And he says to him, go to the brook called Cherish which is east of the Jordan. So Elijah did what God had called him to do. He recognized that he needed God's guidance and he recognized that he needed to obey God's guidance. Listen, when God is leading you, when God is speaking to you in a specific area concerning your life, the first thing you have to do, and we learned this through our study of Haggai, obey. 
Obey God. Because when we delay, we give room for human reasoning, human explanation, and we could easily talk ourselves out of God's guidance. And Elijah was obedient. Our tendency is to direct our own way. Our tendency is to lean on our own understanding. But Proverbs 14, 12 says this. There is a way which seems right to man, but to its end is the way of death. So the first test is a test of God's guidance. Will we follow his command? Will we go the way that he is directing us? Will we do like Elijah? Okay, God, I don't get why you're sending me to the brook Cherish, but okay, I'm going to go. Or will we trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding? Will we acknowledge him in all our ways because he will direct our paths? Will we follow our own strategies or will we trust in the Lord Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Elijah didn't question God. He didn't question God. He didn't put up a fight. He just continued to trust God. If we were to put, if you were to put um, your heart before the Lord and to trust in him and to do something as he leads you and guides you, would you obey him as he's leading you? Or would you measure every leading by what makes sense to you? God is not asking us to logically make sense of how he's leading us. He's asking us to obey. He's asking us to obey. And to do what he is asked, uh, to do how he is leading. So I see God preserving Elijah here. Because if I was Ahab, I would become angered within my heart that this, this guy from who, from where, from what, what is he? What, it's telling me that you better get out of my way now and get out of my way fast. I'm the king and I could call all of my cavalry to come and, and, and kill you. And perhaps Ahab had some anger rising up within him. God only knows the heart of Ahab. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. And so God directs Elijah to lead the land. I see it as God preserving Elijah from possibly becoming the target of Ahab in that very moment. It hadn't been raining for six months, and now it's not going to rain until Elijah speaks again. So God did not want Elijah to remain on the scene God had something greater to do in Elijah's life, and we're going to see just how that plays out. All that Elijah had to do was this, according to Isaiah 41.10. Fear not. Fear not. You see, when you make that step of faith in obeying God's guidance, the first thing the Lord's, the enemy's going to whisper in your ear is, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Are you sure you should? You're, yeah, yeah. And the enemy's going to whisper doubt into your ear. And God is saying to you, fear not. I'm with you. Isaiah 41.10, don't be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The minute you obey, the enemy's going to whisper into your ear and cause you to doubt. But God is saying, don't fear. Don't doubt, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to hold you in this. And that leads us to our next point. God tested Elijah while he was in his hiding place. God was testing Elijah while he was in the hiding place. It, wasn't, it was enough that God would have him to leave and go to this brook called Cherish. But now Elijah had to live in this place, how was he going to live in this place? What did he have? How was he going to eat? You see, Elijah spoke this word to Ahab that there would be neither rain until he spoke again, that that would lead to a famine. Do you think that Elijah was exempt from that famine? 
He spoke that word, but he was living in the land himself. So he also was going to face that famine. He also was going to face that drought. And now God's calling him away from everybody to what? Face it all by himself? Face the drought by himself? Face the famine by himself? Now there is a greater measure of the test of Elijah's faith. Will he trust him when God is hiding him? Will you trust God when your boss overlooks you at work and the, the employee beside you who's just been there a year got the promotion that you work so hard for will you trust god when you go to the bank account and you go to pay the bill and you see that only x amount of dollars are left after you pay the bill will you trust god when he brings you out from everything and your total reliance is upon him, that's where Elijah is. Nothing is very clear. Doesn't really understand what's coming up next. Why did God bring him to this place? But God is going to test Elijah. Elijah prayed fervently. We know that according to last week as we were studying. Everybody's getting that amber alert. Let's just pause for the amber alert. <laughs> okay, it's done now. Nothing appeared to be happening. Um... But God calls him aside, and he brings, his, brings him to this place called Cherish. What does Cherish mean? That's the first thing I wanted to know. I thought, why would, why, what's the significance of God bringing him to this place called Cherith? Well, when I looked up Cherith, I found out Cherith means um, to be cut off, to be separated. It's a separation. So something spiritual is happening here something spiritual is happening here because he's being cut away from the distractors that are there in the land with the, uh, cut away from the people and he is being set apart with God has there ever been a time that there's been people in the in your life that all of a sudden God removed from your life you didn't understand but then as you began to go through you saw that they were a big distraction that they were robbing you of your time with God that they were robbing you of your of your energies of, of uh, where you would normally invest in in your prayer life all of a sudden they were demanding they were wasteful spirits in your life and God called Elijah aside so that he would be cut away so that he would be separated from this place why was he set to sent to a place of cutting it was so that he could be secluded so that he could totally depend on god to provide for his physical needs in that time so that he could totally depend on God for every need, whether it be for thirst or whether it be for food or whether it be for his spiritual needs or whether it be for companionship. He was alone in that place. You don't think in isolation loneliness would happen? Three years Three years. We're not talking about one month. We're not talking about two weeks. We're talking about three years not having anybody else. His total reliance was upon the Lord for his emotional well-being. God, I know I'm not crazy, but you know, and talking to the Lord. His total reliance was upon the Lord for his food. And what did the Lord do? To, pre, to, to provide for his food. Verse 6 says, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I'm sorry, 
But could we pause for just a moment here? Ravens, God? Seriously, ravens? Ravens who eat off of dead carnage? Off of food, uh, off of uh, meat that is rotting? If you have a deer at the side of the road, if you have a squirrel at the side of the road, a raccoon, a skunk, or whatever roadkill you would find, down in my area we see a lot of it, you're going to see ravens pecking at it and tearing apart that meat and eating it. That is a type of bird that they are. And God is going to use that dirty bird to feed Elijah? God is going to use that, that dirty bird to, to bring Elijah his bread every day, every morning and every evening? Because God specializes in using the unlikely things in our life. He specializes in using the unlikely people at just the right time to say the right words, to knock on your door, to bring you this. At at just the right time, God uses the unlikely of our lives to Provide his blessing. Psalm 147 verse 9 says, He gives to the beast their food and to the young ravens that cry. <laughs> for, the, for God, he even provides to the young ravens. You and I might be disgusted by a raven, that it would eat meat that is at the side of the road, infested with flies and perhaps maggots, and there they are, peck, 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 eating away at that meat, tearing apart. But God provides for even the young ravens when they cry. Luke 12, 24 says this, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them, Of how much more value are you than the birds? The Lord used the ravens to feed Elijah because God specializes in what? Using the unlikely. Does it not make you think, where did the ravens get that meat to feed Elijah? Where did they get that meat? If there was a drought and a famine in the land, where did they get that meat? As God provided for those ravens, so those ravens provided for Elijah. You and I can trust that when God would seclude us away from all the distractions, all the idolatry of our land, all the moral corruption that would be going on in the land, when he secludes us from what we once held dear, some friends in our life that were once very valuable from us, when he secludes us from these things and he pulls us away to that place, he's then bringing us to that place where our full dependency is in him. Spiritually, I have nowhere else to go, God. It's just you and me. You brought me to this place where there's a dryness in the land. You've brought me to this place where I can only feast and eat upon you. And so there is Elijah, and there likewise are we. That we go to the Lord for our spiritual food. We are there in that secluded place. We go to him for our emotional and mental well-being. Elijah is fed by the ravens. We're privileged to have the scriptures because this is what we learn. That Elijah is growing in his faith. You see, we know what Elijah faces as he comes away from those ravens. But Elijah didn't know. He didn't know that on the other side of the drought of Cherish, on the other side of being in that secluded place, when the river would dry, when the, when the brook would dry up, on the other side of that dry brook was a never-ending oil. What does the oil represent? An anointing. He didn't know that in that developing stage of his faith, in that growing stage of his faith where his total reliance was upon God, 
was a never-ending supply of oil. A never-ending supply of God's anointing. And we're going to look at that next week because he was going to face a battle. Kings 8, 1 Kings 18. He was going to face a battle where his faith would be right on the altar. And it would be challenged before other gods. And so here is Elijah in that place of seclusion. So before he could stand on Mount Carmel, and face King Ahab and the Baal of uh, the prophets of Baal, he had to sit by a brook and wait for it to trickle down his water for that moment. He had to wait each morning before God for the ravens to bring him his food. He had to mature himself in the faith. You see, we want too many microwave situations. Put it in 30 seconds, it's hot. Put it in one minute, it's cooked. This is how we want God to answer our prayers. This is how we want God to move in our spiritual walk with him. But there are times when he puts us in the slow cooker. There are times that he has us marinating in that place of his oil. And so it's going to be with us. We're going to find ourselves in places of cherish. We're going to find ourselves being in that place where we're praying and praying and praying and praying. But the answers aren't coming and coming and coming. Year one, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Year two, and he prayed and he prayed. And he prayed two years and six months and Elijah still praying and he praying and he praying, believing there's going to be times where your faith is going to be stretched so that your maturity can grow in Christ. Oh, but I've been a Christian for 40 years, you know. Yep. 40 years. And guess what? God is still going to test you. God is still going to stretch you because we are growing from glory to glory. We are growing in our walk with him. James 1, 2 to 4 says this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete Lacking nothing. On the other side of cherish is your unlimited oil. But I'm going to tell you, when you come down from Mount Carmel, Jezebel may be there. And you will have to walk into another cherish type of situation where you're trusting God once again. And you're believing God once again because he is maturing you and he is growing you. We need to trust God when he has us in his hiding place, when nothing seems to be happening because what he is doing in that hiding place is he is growing our spirit man because our spirit man, that very essence of who we are before him is being grown before him and it's going to come forth in due season in its ripe season that prayer that one prayer that morning that you made turn the chapter open the door created the opportunity not because all the other prayers didn't matter but those other prayers were the growing of your faith because that one moment when God called perfect timing into order everything came into his plan that brings us to the final test. God tested Elijah when the brook ran dry. And he tests you and I. He's not sleeping. He's not sleeping. When our prayers don't seem answered, God's not sleeping. When it seems like we're suffering and our suffering goes on and on and on, he's not uncaring. He's not. 
He cares for us so much that he wants to develop our faith and our trust in him. He cares so much for us that he chooses to put us into a secluded place. He chooses, chooses for us to be, come away from the crowds. Verse 7 says this, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Perhaps when Elijah first got there, and it was only six months that the rain had stopped at that point, perhaps the, the water was still a, a good steady flow. And then as time progressed, it began to go from a steady flow to a, 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 light, a, a light trickle into perhaps strips. And he could see that the brook was getting to that place that if I come here tonight, Lord, will there be a drop of water for me? And go that night, Lord, when I come tomorrow morning, will there be that water for me? Until that day inevitably happens, there is no more water, and God stops the flow. How many of us here tonight, or maybe online, have found ourselves in a dry place? have found ourselves in a place where we're saying, God, will it, will it happen tomorrow? Will the breakthrough happen tomorrow? God will, what? God, and you're stammering over your, your prayer. You're, 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 in that, you're in that dry place. God, it's, it's, been, it's been a whole year I've been, I've been here that I'm praying and I'm seeking your face for this. God, like, Really? God, God, it's been two years. It's been two years, God. God, it's been three years. It's been three years. When, God? Well, God's not a man that he should lie. And if he promised Elijah that he would take care of him, then that same promise is for you and I to take to the bank. He promises the same thing to you and I. If he said to Elijah in verse 4, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there, then Elijah can know what? That God will provide for him to drink and to eat. And the same thing is for you and I. His promise does not run dry at Elijah, and it will not run dry at us. If the brook has run dry, God then brings us to the next place. God sent him to the brook. God knew that the brook would eventually come to a place of not flowing anymore. Why does God bring us to just enough? Why does God allow seasons in our life where it's just enough? Just enough monies to get by for that month. Just enough strength to get by for that week. Just enough emotional stamina to make it through that day. Just enough faith to make it through that prognosis the doctor gave. What is it that, why is it that God gives us just enough? If I was in Elijah's shoes right now in this place of Cherish and I, and I had the brook before me and I went to get a drink and the brook was dry, the first thing I would say is, God, what did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? God, I prayed. I read your word. I've been here in seclusion. It's just been you and me. I've talked to you. God, what did I do wrong? Where did I make a mistake? I've trusted you even when you sent silly ravens to feed me. God, the unclean of the unclean. I trusted you even in that moment. And what now? Do you leave me here to die so that the ravens could then feed off of me? Do I become a mockery to my friends? Oh, well, you said God. Da, 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 da. 
Oh, so you're a person of prayer. Where's your God now? Why are you going through all this kind of suffering? That's not how God operates. This drought taught Elijah to depend on God for his food, for his water. But greater than that is because for Elijah to be that prophet to the people moving forward and be in that place. Now he's going to leave Cherish. We'll look at it next week. And he goes to a woman's house and she's preparing the last meal. For him to be able to say to her, prepare something for me. He knew what it was like to be in the very last meal. He knew what it was like to go to the brook one last time. She was going to go to the jar of oil one last time. She was going to go to the vat of flour one last time. What greater person than one who has been in that place? Sometimes you're in that just enough place, yes, to grow your faith, yes, so your total dependency can be on God, but also so that you could learn a little bit of empathy also so that you can have a little bit of sympathy when somebody else goes through their circumstances also so that in your sympathy you can look at their life and you can pray for them so that you could be that power prayer coasting them along behind the scenes and they don't know but because you have been there you could pray them through there 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. You wonder why you're in this season? You wonder why you're in this place? Look around you. Somebody else might be in the same thing. And maybe your comfort extended to them could help them through. God wants us to learn to be content no matter what situation we are in. Why then might we experience God's sufficiency? And learn that God is our greatest need. Because Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all, my, all your needs according to his riches in glory. Ephesians 3 and 20. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or think. God, God provided for Elijah's needs in two ways. In the natural, because he provided a brook. And he provided ravens with the food by the supernatural. Because what bird feeds man? So there in the natural, he had the brook for his water. In the supernatural, he had the provision of the ravens. What looks impossible to you? Hold tight. Hold tight. Because the flour and the oil are just around the corner. If the brook never ran dry, Elijah would never experience the unending su supply of oil. Next week, we'll look into that. If the brook never ran dry, the Lord would not say to him in verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, verse 9, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. If the brook never ran dry, then Elijah would never be able to go to a woman and be a blessing to her. If the brook never ran dry, then Elijah would never be able to grow his faith to then stand before God and call him to send forth fire on the altar. You see, 
Right now, it might feel like a cherish situation. It might feel like a drought, but your faith is growing because there's an altar that needs fire on it around the corner. There's an altar that needs your prayers to saturate it. And that's where we are tonight, brothers and sisters. That's where we are, where we meet on Wednesday nights, that we would pray into the needs, not just of our corporate assembly, but the needs of our city, the needs of our country. Why? Because we are in a dry place. Where the word of the Lord is not even known to the people of the land. Where the word of the Lord was taken out of the schools from our children. Where our, our governments aren't even honoring the word of God. Where there is no moral compass in the land. We are in this dry place. And the watching world is saying, Aha, you Christians. <laughs> you Christians. But God. But God, because there's an altar around the corner, and on that altar, God will demonstrate his power. But we need to keep pressing through in this place where our faith is stretching. I don't know what brook you're in, and I don't know if there's a trickle of water or if it's completely dry, but I encourage you, press on, 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 because the oil is around the corner. Father God, we thank you tonight. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this man, Elijah God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that through his life we could learn that, Lord, even when you call us to do obscure things, to go to a place that makes no sense, even, God, when you call us to be cut away, to be separated from what is familiar to us, even when you call us to a place where we have to trust you in our loneliness, we have to trust you in our season of drought and our seasons of doubt, oh, God, Lord, when we have been called to that place that makes no sense, I thank you that we have an example of Elijah, that Lord, in his time and in his season, Lord, how you grew in him faith, that we can trust you that God, when the stretching is hard, when the pressing is hard, that we know, oh God, you're you're fermenting a new wine. As you're stretching our wine bag, oh God, you're fermenting a new wine in us. As the pressing gets increasingly difficult, oh God, and we don't understand why it's so hard to press on and press on, oh God, we know that in the crushing there is an oil. And so we look to you tonight, mighty God. Have your way. Have your way. Give us strength in our dry seasons to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name. <laughs>